Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 41. I'm Mike Uptograph. And I'm Joshua Klein. And in news around here, what's going on? Mm, what are we doing? Uh, term three of the apprenticeship program is underway. Yeah. Uh, we've been working with students through uh, stock prep and sharpening and, uh, you know, different sawing posture and, yep. uh, you know, diagnosing and planing uh, issues. So, uh, yeah, that's been exciting. Got a fresh batch of folks in and they're all working through stuff. Um, this program is just so exciting to see. You know, we were talking about Monday and Tuesday of every week, it seems like. You know, it's like, oh no, what's this it's new a skill? Steep I'm learning. learning curve. And then Wednesday and Thursday, things start clicking. And you know, as they finish their assignment for that week throughout the weekend, and Monday morning they turn in their assignment. It's you know, we see a lot of people like, wow, I just, it's exciting to see how it clicks. And so, yeah, yeah it's it's always such a rewarding thing to 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 watch people grow go through that. It process. is, and th- this is the sweaty week. This is the week <laughs> of stock prep, and there are long rips, you know, eight foot rips and two inch stock going yep. on, and uh, delightful to see. So yep. we even saw pictures of people's sweaty brows. Yes, yes, <laughs> intent <laughs> pointing out the sweat on the brow. Yeah. So it's real. It is real. It's real work, and it's good work. We also have. As of this podcast, your book worked is open for pre-orders. Yep, it is in yeah. the store. So going to be hitting hitting uh, hitting the mail in August or so. We think. Yeah, something like that. Um, as I'm sure you all know, the printing industry is uh, you know delayed, so uh, everything kind of takes a little bit longer. But um, yeah, so worked is the sequel to my book Joined, uh, which was focused on it's you know that was a bench guide to. Uh, to joinery, um, furniture joinery particularly. Um, but worked is sort of a sequel to that. Um, not so much sequentially in terms of the workflow, but it's actually, it's the prequel, I guess you could say. Um, but people, you know, want to learn a, a pre-industrial approach to furniture making. So they think about joinery first. And this book worked a bench guide to hand tool efficiency is all about, okay, well, but how do you get to that point? Uh, so it's uh, stock prep, work holding, workflow, stuff like that, you know, how to incorporate an axe into your right. cabinet making work, your furniture making work, how to deal with traversing, how to um, use what, what I call um, free or restrained work holding, these two different ways of holding your work and um, these different uh, approaches to it. So the goal is efficiency, but as I said in the preface in the book, um, in the beginning of the book, that it's it's not efficiency for efficiency's sake per se, mm. like with this industrial uh, focus, but it's efficiency for proficiency's sake. So it's like when you're learning to ride a bike, you can't learn very successfully slow. Right. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta get just go rolling. for it. Yeah. So you know you can't go lightning speed. But you gotta get some momentum. You got you start things start clicking and you start learning really well when you're kind of underway and you're moving and moving. So, what I'm trying to do in this book is is uh, help people get rolling, help them to say, all right, don't get bogged down with all these fancy devices and clamps and blah blah blah. Focus on this, you know, just get focused on this, and then you'll be able to develop that hand skill uh, so much faster. And it's so much more fun. Yeah, um, that you're, you're not breaking the flow. I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do is help people not break the flow of work. You know, when you're 
when you're kind of in the groove and you're, you're cutting joinery and things are just clicking and working, every time you insert some complicated device or mechanism or whatever, mm. it just breaks the workflow. Takes the time. And you have yeah. to go, oh yeah, where's that thing? And I need another clamp. And that's always disrupting it. So it's not as fun <laughs> and it's really uh, inefficient. And so it's just sort of a frustrating endeavor. So I'm trying to say, don't get distracted. <laughs> don't get hung up with that stuff. How do you know, we want to focus on how to work in a free, uh, successful way? So yeah. that book is available um, on our website. It's open for pre-orders now. It's free domestic shipping. Um, and we are also offering a bundle of oh, that yeah. book and joined. Yep. So you can get the two together, and uh, joined will ship right out, and worked will ship once it's back from the printer. Yep. Uh, but you'll get a good discount. Yeah, so uh, now's the time, uh, free domestic shipping. Uh, obviously, once we get the book in stock, then it'll no longer be free shipping uh, within the U.S. So, right. yeah. And uh, what else? Oh, issue yeah, 12. The big news. Issue 12 arrived, um, and we are uh, excited about it. It's a beautiful issue, uh, lots of gorgeous pictures. Um, so that should be hitting your mailboxes any day. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked about the issue somewhat already, talked about uh, a few different things, um, a few different articles, and kind of hinted at the, you know, the Kuchia and some different things coming. Right. On our blog, of course, we've uh, written about each article coming up that we had said, you know, we precede each issue with a table of contents blog series. So we have... If you go to the um, issue 12 product on our store, you can look at the table of contents and each of those articles, you can click on those to read about what is this article all about? Who is this and what's the, what's the story? So. Yeah. So as uh, you know, I'm betting that as some of you listen to this podcast, uh, some of those issues are showing up in mailboxes. So uh, once you get your issue, uh, Read it through. Let us know what you think. Uh, yep. Comment. You know, you can comment on our blog or go over to the Daily Dispatch and leave a comment over there. We're, we love um, feedback. We love interaction. And uh, we're, we're hoping, you know, our goal with every issue is to, is to give something to think about, you know, to give uh, food for thought, to give some challenge, some, um, some new ideas, some very old ideas that haven't been considered for a while. Uh, basically to offer something of value. So we'd love to get your thoughts on issue 12. So uh, speaking of issue 12, Joshua, you wrote an article for issue 12 that we're going to talk about today because we realized that we've never done a podcast on this topic that is near and dear to our hearts. Yeah. And then you wrote an article about it, and this is the perfect opportunity to unpack this. Uh, we're talking today about making wooden planes. Yep. And that's what your article was. You made a um, a wooden foreplane mm -hmm. and wrote about it. And you went through all the ins and outs of um, sourcing your stock and chopping out mortise, chopping, you know, working through where to get plane irons and everything. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you you put a lot of time into coming up with the best way to explain this process. Mm, yeah, it's kind of painful. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, yeah. It was great. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think it's, uh, wooden plane making is something that for me, I've been so interested in for a long time. Um, I am a diehard wooden plane user. I love wooden planes. And so I, I wanted to be able to uh, help people 
to to make this information more accessible to people. Um, and because I think that wooden planes really are uh, superior, frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really, if you're going to do hand tool work, um, you can use metal bodied planes, um, and they're they're especially great for you know uh, precision kind of planing and that kind of thing. But I've become convinced that um, if you if you're not going to be dependent on uh, machinery for your stock prep, if that is the case, then you really are going to want to shift over to wooden bodied planes, um, <clears throat> at least your four plane or your jack plane. So right, yeah. I mean, I think you know we've been wanting to um, to encourage that because as we talk about the the value of wooden planes uh, over the years, we've convinced a handful of people, right, <laughs> and they said great. Now, how do I get one? How do I get a wooden plane? Yeah, and there are a few um, modern makers out there, um, but you know those are more expensive. Um, and all of our planes, besides the ones we've made, they're all just you know antiques. They're all just right. twenty dollar planes. They're nothing fancy. So for those out there who don't have antique stores with you know old yeah, jack planes or whatever, full, yeah, um, the I thought, okay, well, maybe we can figure out how to teach people to make their own planes. Yeah. And basically, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we get into the the technique that you lay out, but uh, you wanted to offer a way to revive the old traditional plane making techniques, um, not relying so much on, and, and certainly not dissing like the Krenov style planes where you're, you're ripping your plane blank mm-hmm. Uh, so that you open it up and you can just basically cut your mortise on a chop saw if you want to, and then you glue it back together with a pin. Um, You wanted to offer a look at the traditional way, which involves your your plain body and chopping a mortise without all the, um, let's say, very technical way of looking at it that, that you often find today. Yeah, it looks like a terrifying thing to do. Uh, yeah, I mean so that, that's the thing is like I I've when I learned plane making, um, I was looking digging through all the resources that are out there, or you know a bunch of them, trying to figure out okay how do you make these things, and um, as you said, you know if you were to think of it in terms of like a continuum of the kind of presentation you have on one end, you have um, people who are really interested in, you know, 18th, early 19th century planes, and they have all this instruction, and they give you all of the degrees and the half a degree, exactly. and you got to add yeah. the degrees to, I mean, it's like, um, this stuff is helpful, but it's written really kind of from an engineering mindset. So it ends up, if you work to those that kind of accuracy, you can really get that great, that successfully, it, it does work well. Um, but I thought, you know, it just seems like, um, from what I know of pre-industrial craftsmanship, that right. probably wasn't the approach that was taken on. They weren't um, splitting degrees. They weren't splitting degrees, right. Um, and so there was that whole thing, which is super complicated, super precise. And you you know a lot of the advice is about where to you gotta obsess over this and obsess over that. And everything is very detailed. Um, and in general, that there's that kind of thinking. And then on the other end of the continuum, there is the the acknowledgement that traditional wooden plane making is really hard, mm. and therefore let's abandon it. Right. And we like wood, but let's just you know. So there's the Krenov uh, plane tradition, or the laminated planes. And so what they do is they have a block of wood that they saw into pieces, um, so they're not having to chop the mortise. And instead of traditional abutments, 
so the the shoulders that the wedge wedges against right um instead of that they they're saying let's simplify that let's get rid of those abutments and let's just Put a cross a big pin, pin. yeah, and then the wedge will sit underneath that cross pin instead of the traditional abutments. And so, a lot of people uh, today who make wooden planes, they're um, interested in that way of doing it. Now, you can do that, of course, with with hand tools. Uh, Richard McGuire's talked about that. Mm-hmm. Our friend Jim McConnell has made planes like that, um, you know, by hand without you know any machinery prep. Um, but it really is sort of a machinery mentality. It makes sense that you would rip. A, right. a block of wood into right. little pieces and then glue it again and then glue it back up um so yeah i basically said okay well i, I don't think uh, basically they both of those ends of the spectrum are kind of operating out of the same um perspective on plane making that it's an engineer's right craft yeah and so we should embrace it or we should <clears throat> reject it and right. i'm saying i object i don't yeah. think it's actually an engineer's craft yeah um and so what I was interested in is, okay, well, what's a different way to approach it? If we want it to be accessible, uh, but we don't want to just make it accessible so we abandon it, uh, how do how did these guys do this? Yeah. Um, so that's been kind of my journey. It's, it's very similar to what I've been doing with furniture making, and I just wanted to apply the same sort of experimental archaeology thought process to plane making. Yeah. So let's come back. Uh, back to the beginning and ask the question, why are wooden-bodied planes better? Um, yeah, well, so I think the, the most fundamental thing about it is um, I said that I believe if you're not using machinery for stock prep and you're going to be you know, hand-planing to thickness and smooth, then you're going to want wooden planes. And the reason is for that particular situation, um, there are, well, two primary things um these wooden planes are of course lighter right. than metal bodied planes a lot lighter a lot lighter yeah like it's like two-thirds of the weight right. or whatever i think we we've met you know weighed a few just to kind of get a sense of like how much do these really change yeah um so they're they're physically lighter there's just not as much a heft to them so right. if you think about taking a rough board and starting with a hand plane and planing to thickness that's a lot of planing. Yeah, every That's stroke of, of the plane, your body is overcoming the inertia of getting that that plane moving exactly. and then stopping it, picking it up, probably coming back yeah. to the beginning and doing it again. Yeah, and that is no that's joke. A, that's a fixed amount of energy that you're expending. So I don't need to convince anybody that planing boards by hand is work. Right. Everybody, right. everybody knows that. So then to me, it makes sense that we try to f- use a tool that minimizes that sort of mm-hmm. physical exhaustion. And a lot of people who cl- complain about hand tools as being so, you know, arduous and so terrible to use, right. I would never plane by hand. I'll just use machines. I bet they have a metal body plane. Right. That's not the only reason they're probably saying that, but I would say, well, okay, yeah. but I mean, yeah, it makes a big difference. It's like what Isaac Newton said, right? Force equals mass times acceleration. That's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what he said, and he was probably talking about planing with yeah. a metal-bodied plane. Yeah. He so <laughs> if you reduce the mass, you reduce the force that you need to use. Yeah. So right along with that, coupled with that observation, is not only is the tool lighter, but the sole is wood, and therefore it glides ac- across the wood so much uh, more freely. Right. If you're a metal plane user, you know about how important it is to lubricate the sole of your planes mm-hmm. because metal on wood, it 
adds it, it provides a lot of friction so you have to push hard so you have to get all the people have these oily rags and these um uh, for all the different ways people do it i don't even know mm-hmm. but they you know stick a wax beeswax yeah. and that kind of stuff because they they realize there's so much friction between my plane sole and my board and this is just so frustrating i feel like i have to constantly well the little secret is i don't ever 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 do that i don't ever lubricate my plane soles because it's wood and yeah. wood gets burnished yeah and so these the wooden planes just glide across the wood and the more you use them, the more burnished they get. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the other benefit. So they're light and they glide across the surface. I gotta tell you, it makes a huge, it's tremendous huge difference. Yeah. So um, those are the primary things in terms of of um, you know the stock prep kind of thing. Right. But I don't know. I mean, what else? Yeah. Would you... So one of the things that we hear all the time is people who have been uh, you could say brought up on metal body planes, and they say. I don't know if I could switch to wood. That just seems complicated to adjust that. Like, how do you adjust it? There aren't knobs. You don't have the levers. You can't move your your frog around. You know, like, it, it just doesn't seem straightforward. And uh, to that end, um, I would say that there's it's a learning curve uh, to anything. Just as when you got that metal body plane, it wasn't instinctive. So, like, I have this little... Um, metal-bodied Lee Nielsen block plane that, okay, it has a knob that you adjust on one end, you can adjust the mouth and everything else, but there's also this nuance to it. Like, as you advance the iron, you you advance it a little bit, and then you have to back up the knob to the other end of the free play in that adjustment so that the iron doesn't slip back. So, like, as you're using these metal-bodied planes, you realize it's not just as straightforward as turning a knob to deepen the cut, backing the knob to to back the cut up. You have to work with the the sloppy free play that's there, right? So, and then, you know, it, it starts cutting and it's the iron's a little skewed and you have to make some fiddling, some adjustments and that kind of thing. There's a learning curve. Metal body planes are really not as simple in use as a lot of people think they are, it's just that they've gotten used to them. Exactly. Wooden body planes, I would say, are simpler in use. Yep. Because I would definitely say if if I was talking to someone who's never used a plane before, right, I can get them adjusting a wooden plane faster, faster. than adjusting a metal yep. plane successfully. I I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, but it is again, it's that learning curve. Someone who's mm-hmm. used to a metal body plane, what they say, oh, it's so hard to learn to use. Well. You're right. starting from scratch. Yeah, you, it's a totally different approach. Exactly. So, uh, we we would both say that the adjustability of a wooden body plane is one of its benefits. Yep. It is. Uh, it is very simple. You have a little hammer sitting on your bench. When you need to deepen the cut, you give it a little tap. When you need to adjust the cut, you give it a little tap. It's all about just little little taps yep. on either the the body of the plane or on the iron or on the wedge. Yeah. I mean, if you want a deeper cut. You tap the iron you make deeper. Make the iron extend further. And and it becomes, once you learn each plane, uh, each operation becomes very predictable. You know just how much a tap will advance the iron. Mm-hmm. And you just get to know it. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, there, are, there really are like so many reasons. <laughs> there, yeah. there are so many reasons to get into wooden planes. But I think that those are kind of the most fundamental uh, yeah. things. And so, you know, we've been arguing that for years, trying to 
encourage people to do this. And the, the main hurdle we've heard from people is accessibility. I don't have these planes. How can right. I, how can I get one of those? Yeah. And so, and it is true. I mean, I think it was said about, um, 18th century, uh, like frame, uh, timber frame houses, but I, I've started applying this metaphor to antiques and antique tools all over the place. It's like, what, what is rarer? Uh, an antique tool or a moon rock. Of course, antique tools are because there's mm -hmm. only a fixed amount and that number is getting smaller all the time. You can always go to the moon and get more rocks. Yep. Uh, so these tools They got are, a lot over there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I suspect that the moon is entirely rocks. Uh, not entirely, you know, like 19th century four planes. Because mm -hmm. they're somewhat, you know, you could tally the number remaining on earth of 19th century or 18th century wooden four planes. And that number is going down every day. Right. Uh, people are, you know, using hot glue and gluing in little fake flowers into those and selling mm. them on Etsy every day. And they're disappearing, right? They're going into some, some corner of somebody's country home, never to be used again. It's very sad. <laughs> uh, so in some places it's, it's quite hard to find them, you know, in, we hear stories from people in the Midwest here in the US who don't ever see these in an, an antique store. Somebody on the West Coast, they they rarely if ever see them. So you go on eBay or you go online and you can find them there. Mm -hmm. But I will say they have become more hard to find. They've become rarer. Yep, yeah, definitely. But also, I mean, who doesn't want to make their own tools? Yeah. I mean, that's just so yeah. stinking fun. Yeah. So that's the other piece of it too is, you know, saying, okay, even if, you know, some, I'm sure someone, you know, who would end up making a plane from this article has already got wooden planes, but it's just so fascinated with the whole process because it is so fun and mm -hmm. it's so um, kind of, it's kind of addicting. Uh, like I, you know, I kind of want to make another four plane. I've mm -hmm. made, you know, You're a handful like, of little planes now. So I don't really need any more yeah. and I have other ones, but I kind of want to make another one. Mm -hmm. So um, that's good. That's a good kind of addiction, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. And, and uh, you know, again, I've, I, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned on the podcast before about the old analogy from Star Wars about how Darth Vader says to Luke, you know, you've made your own lightsaber. I see your skills are complete. So that is kind of the full circle, right? You're learning woodworking. So you come back to making your own tools right. to profit and benefit your woodworking. So it's it's kind of the natural cycle. And again, it was the common practice throughout history. Yeah, and I, I would say, I don't, I wouldn't say that that Star Wars reference um, is saying that it's the pinnacle of craftsmanship. Like when you're really, really accomplished, then you go to make your right. own tools. In fact, historically, that's not the case at all. Mm -hmm. um, but we see uh, cabinet makers throughout history, it was very normal for them to make their own planes. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, they would purchase irons from blacksmiths right. or from you know Sheffield or something. They'd have them imported into here in the States. And whether it's the Dominey Collection or Jonathan Fisher or Samuel Wing or all of the untold, just piles and piles and piles, cabinet makers often made their own planes. Mm -hmm. So they got the iron and they said, okay, well, I'm a woodworker. Of course I can make yeah, my own I can make, hand I, plane. I do wood. That's what I do. That's my thing. Yeah. yeah. And I know so, like um, for Japanese journeymen who would carry their tools on their back oftentimes, 
um, they would travel to a new job, say they have a big, a large timber frame to build, they would just carry their, their plane irons with them. And once they get there, they get the stock to make new bodies. And of course, Japanese planes are much simpler even than our good old Yankee four planes. They don't have a tote. They don't have much of anything except a block of wood with that special mortise in it to take the iron. So you'd go, you'd make a new body for, for your irons. You get it, that all set up, and that's just part of setting up for the job. Hmm. And then, yeah. you know, who knows? Maybe at the end of the job, the, the, the body's thrown in the burn pile, and you pack up and leave and go to the next one. Wow. So uh, very interesting. It's a, it's a different mindset than we're used to today. Yeah, so that, was that, that kind of thing, that kind of... Um, the heart of that idea, the, the thought about craftsmanship, that I'm a woodworker, so of course I can make my own hand plane. Duh, it's just yeah. a hole in a block of wood. Of right. course I could do that. That is what I want to recover. Mm. I want the obviousness of making a, a plane to be present in every woodworker. So yeah, yeah. of course I can. I'll just, yeah, I'll just make another one. Or this one's kind of not quite comfortable. I'll just yeah. make a I'll different one this weekend. You know? yeah. <laughs> I think we've lost that, and I want to yeah. try to recover that. Yeah, that is the solution to so many quandaries about tool sourcing. Um, you know, if if you can get the metal bits from somewhere, it's the, it's the wooden parts of the tools, whether it's a saw, you know, a back saw, whether it's a plane, whether it's a chisel handle, it's those wooden parts that we interact with and, with and that we we sometimes have problems with. So, we're woodworkers, we can change those wooden parts to mm-hmm. do whatever we want. Um so, yeah, before so uh, wooden planes were made in the factory by the mid 19th century. Mm-hmm. That was, it was like the same design can be found, like the Auburn tool works or the Sandusky or all these, they look pretty yeah. much identical, Sure, right? And they were just kind of cranked out. Um, there was some, there was a lot of kind of hand work in the factory production, but they were still yeah. made in these industrial settings. But uh, we have interacted with um, different makers' collections and things like that enough to see that before that it was uh, completely routine that these these planes were made by. We did um, we had the article about Samuel Wing down in Massachusetts who had his tool collections. You studied Jonathan Fisher mm-hmm. and all his uh, self-made tools. Mm-hmm. We talked about the the Domini family. Uh, so this is uh, just common practice. For yeah, and those are not like history. the three exceptional examples. Right. Those are just examples of how yeah, it three was normally done. Yeah, three the top of our heads. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that is how it was done. <clears throat> yeah. So getting back to what we we're talking about in terms of splitting angles and the engineering mindset that oh, yeah, sure. is necessary for, say, mass production of metal-bodied planes. Sure. Uh, that's not how these makers made wooden-bodied planes. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to be setting up a shop with machinery, you have to be crazy, crazy precise mm-hmm. so that everything is interchangeable. Interchangeable. Yeah. Machines can't parts. eye things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. <laughs> they don't do things by eye. They yeah. need fractions of degrees. So yeah, I mean that's you know that's part of what our our fascination is obviously at M and T anyways. The difference between uh, machine production mentality and a, a craft production mentality um yeah eyeing something 
Does mm-hmm. it look straight? Does it look flat? Does it whatever? Um, and so how do you make things work together? Um, in the machine mentality, you can use hand tools with a machine mentality. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking everything needs to be, every part needs to be interchangeable and absolutely precise and perfect. Right. And it's paralyzing. Yes. Because trying to do that by hand and by eye is such an enormous ask. Yeah. It's it's saying, whoa, it's, it, it's like... It's like the worst of both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's right. the precision of machinery, but by hand. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah, but you can. Whoa. Yeah. That is a serious, serious Why would you do that if you're looking to do woodworking for enjoyment? Yeah. Or for pleasure? Yeah. So, you know, it may be that that's your thing. You just really like uh, very picky, finicky work, and that's great. Um, but it doesn't have to be the case. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, the, the engineer mindset, the, the factory production of wooden planes, um, I was trying to look past that a little bit. But even, you know, so I was looking at a few different things. I wanted to find a straightforward approach, something that was much more um, obvious. <clears throat> and so I was looking at a few different sources to try to um, connect with a 21st century hobbyist um, to, to connect that to the past. So we're not starting with the, the assumption that we're going to try to work like the factory did. No, no, no. If we're, if we're doing this by hand, how would someone approach it? Right. So there were a few different um, resources I found in particular that really helped me. Um, and one of them was, um, they're not necessarily in logical order, um, but one of them was, there is a, a, a YouTube video um, that is the Ken Hawley collection. Um, they have these this collection of videos on YouTube. Um, and there is a, a, a video by or of Albert Bach, who is a London plane maker. Um, and it's really great. So he's he's like the last, you know, wooden plane maker uh, working in, I think this was 1965 it was filmed. So this is totally in an industrial uh, setting. So it shows how much handwork was happening, mm. that, that he was still doing that kind of stuff in that uh, setup. But what's so valuable about it is it was documenting the way that Bach was making these planes by hand. And you watch that and you realize, whoa, mm. that is a craft tradition right there. Yeah. That is not, you know, standing in line with all these blanks that are milled and sending them through the machine. No, no, no. This is totally old school uh wooden plane making. So I, I think that was, he was sort of like this, uh, gem exception mm. as part of a tradition that was still kind of hanging on. But of course, even though we're saying 19th century planes were machined a right. lot of it, but so it's interesting to watch this film because it's sort of a, a glimpse to it a little bit earlier time. He had those skills. He knew what was going on. He could chop the mortise, um, in the way that he was. And, uh, so it's so fascinating because I also read this other uh, little article, this Victorian era uh, article by uh, William Armour, and it was written in this publication called Work, uh, which is a great name for yeah, a publication. That is a good name. Um, but he was describing, he was a plane maker, and he was describing the plane making process in this article, you know, no pictures. Well, there are a few diagrams, but uh, just describing it. And it was like Albert Bach. Is like the mm. same kind of approach. It was everything is by eye, by feel, and very, I would say, workmanlike. And so everything is um, referenced. All of the measurements—they're not splitting, you know, 
degrees of measurement. Right. He's it's referenced. I do this, and then you know just measure an inch inch up, and then just connect it to this other line, and it's this totally tactile, hmm. direct uh, approach for layout that just for me unlocked. Like yes, of course, that's how they did it. Um, and so that's that was kind of the way that I approached this whole thing was looking at those sources and then also also trying to connect that with the other resources, um, the modern resources that are out there today. One of the, the best articles um, that I've read, it was written by Steve Voigt for Popular Woodworking. Um, I think the article's called um, Smooth Operator. Yes, um, right. But it, it was about making a double iron uh, smoothing plane. And that's a great article, really great article and helpful. Um, and so what I wanted to do is say, okay, that helped me. That's how I got launched. And I wanted to approach it, to present it in a, a really direct and straightforward way, kind of like William Armour was. So mm. just do it this way. Just go reference off of that and off of this, and then don't don't sweat the degrees. And, right. So. so no lasers involved. Well, yeah. I don't, I don't <laughs> think Steve uses lasers. No, but. no micrometers involved. Yeah. Sure. Um, basically, you wanted a more straightforward and um, uh, just basic, in, intuitive approach to this. Yep. The same way that these period cabinet makers would have made their furniture. You want to mm -hmm. approach making the tools in the same way. So, uh, what was the process? What did you? How? I I know that we. Part of the fun thing about the articles that we do is that we bounce so much stuff off of each other. Mm -hmm. And there are some specific places where you are finding it difficult to convey the process. Oh, like, yeah. how do you describe this? Because yeah. if if you have, if, if you're listening and you're in a place where you can do this, like not in your car, if you have a wooden bodied plane, uh, just take a look at it. Look at all that's going in down in, in the throat the there. Inside the throat, yeah. yeah. There are some different angles. If you've never looked closely at it, it might seem pretty complicated. Yeah. But just look at all those different things and think, okay, get your mind around it and say, how would I describe that to someone? Yeah. How would I explain how to do that? Yeah. How to make yeah, that? Yeah, so you have, part of the big, I was actually talking with my friend, uh, Brendan Gaffney, and um, he's made a bunch of, um, of the Kronov style planes. He's a big Kronov fan. And so we were talking about how to approach this. I think actually, oh yeah, he told me he was the editor at Popular Woodworking for Steve's for article. When Steve's which article. Which is funny, yeah. this is a great connection. So we yeah. were talking, Brendan and I were talking about um, my article I'm work, I was working on at the time and the the struggle of trying to describe all that geometry in, inside of there. And what I said to him, and he almost said at the same time that we were both saying a lot of the issue with plane making is not how to chop or how to pair or how to cut. Right. We're all woodworkers, but it's just, it's the terminology problem. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to say, you know, there are all these new words that non-plane makers right. have no idea what they're referring to. Bed, abutment, cheek, wear, breast, mm -hmm. eye. Right. What the heck is all that stuff, you yeah. know? Um, and so once you have a clear grasp on that terminology, well, then it's really pretty obvious. You know, it's like, oh yeah, okay, just reference off the breast angle. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, trying to put that into a two-dimensional, you know, like a written, printed page right. is like, it's really hard to convey. So um, that's what we were really focusing on. And, and in my experience, the presentations I have seen on it, um, 
we anyone who's written about plane making, I think, has felt the struggle. This is really hard to communicate. So I wanted to try to focus on getting really clear diagrams of the mm, layout, right? Um, which is um, what William Armour did so well. So I adopted his diagrams. I, I, inspired by his diagrams, I made mine in a similar way, but tried to make it even more, you know, as these Victorian articles go, right. it's sort of, well, then you just this, and then you just that. And they're like, right. well, there are a lot of steps between what you just right. said. There's, there are a lot of assumptions made about our knowledge. Um, so I wanted to fill in those gaps for sure, but um, but yeah. So this the the biggest thing with plane making is terminology, and so that was part of the whole approach was to say, okay, so layout is first. Bread, uh, the bed, uh, abutments, breast, mouth, um, and everything that's relevant, everything that really matters. And again, just like with furniture making, some joint, some piece, some angle. Some of those really, really matter. Mm. They have to perfectly fit the mating piece. Right. Or it's like the show face of a piece of yeah. furniture. And some parts do not matter whatsoever. You yeah. just need to get it out of the way of yeah. the thing that does matter. So knowing the difference between those parts, you know, thinking about um, the breast angle, for example, it doesn't really matter if it's kind of... A few degrees this way or that way, yeah. So, yeah, and the the angle on it really doesn't matter whatsoever. So I think people worry too much about their layout lines and getting it exactly on and on one degree off on my breast angle. Right. Which is just crazy because that doesn't even matter whatsoever. So that gets back to that, like the NASA level tolerances that have really crippled a lot of hand-tool woodworkers, you know, not recognizing what is appropriate in mm-hmm. terms of precision. Yeah, and actually, I mean, this is like my book works that I'm talking about. It's so much of it is talking about tolerances. Mm-hmm. How flat is flat right. for furniture? That's the question. It's within this particular trade or craft, what are the tolerances? Mm. You can't say, well, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right. So therefore, furniture must be made to NASA tolerances. Right. Well, obviously not. That's, <laughs> right. No one argues that because that's crazy. Right. So the question isn't about whether it should be flat or not, but how flat is flat? Yep. What do we mean by that? Yeah. So the, the table that we're sitting at is flat. It is flat enough to function as a table. Nothing is falling off it. Right. Nothing is creeping <laughs> off the edge but it would certainly not be flat enough for yeah, a I wouldn't, machine shop. I wouldn't fly to the moon in it. No, I that would be hard to do, for sure. <laughs> but um, so yeah, this article, what I wanted to do, sourcing stock is an issue for a lot of people. They say, oh, I don't know where to get this stock. Now, I actually don't think that's a, a big hurdle because lumber yards have 12 quarter stock. They have yeah. three inch thick stock, hardwood. So there you go. That's all you really yeah. need. But um, short of that, with this article, I've, I've made planes out of that, um, you know, hardwood from a lumber yard. And it works great. It works fine. Um, so I talk about that in the article. But in, for this particular one, um, I did a different approach, which uh, Mike, you, you were in your woods. And yeah. When did you... So I think that this was from, so this is, uh, you made the plane out of yellow birch, yep. which I believe was from the same tree that I cut down and used to make the candle stand I made in issue oh, three. Oh, funny. Wow, so it's okay. the same tree. So this was years ago. Yeah. Uh, he 
split a blank for me because I said, I want to make a wooden four plane. I want to copy Jonathan yeah. Fisher's plane. Right. And so he... Which was Yellow Birch, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why I did was. that. Right. Yellow Birch was um, the the staple plane making wood in the U.S. before beach, European beach became right. you know common. So anyways... Um, yeah, so I had this blank. I uh, painted the end grain so to prevent checking, and I threw it behind my workbench for a few years mm-hmm. to let it dry and acclimate and everything. Yeah, that moved over when we moved over here. Yeah, it moved shops. Yeah, it yeah, did. exactly. Um, so yeah, that's I made a um, I made this four plane out of a block of firewood essentially. Right, it was just split right out of a freshly felled tree and stuck aside for a few years. Mm-hmm. So. I wanted to do that because I, I think it's really important that people see that this material is not that exotic. Right. Um, yeah, you don't need to go and order a plain blank. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> what, you what is can, what? You can do there that. There are a yeah, few totally. people, a very few people who, you know, would maybe be able to do that for you, but that is really hard. That's that's a pretty finite supply. Right. And it's just a block of wood, and right. there are other sources out there. So, yeah, I mean, basically, the, the overall approach to give a bird's eye uh, obviously the article goes into details. The goal of the article is that you can read it and working through the article, you can build your own plane. Mm-hmm. So all those details are there. But from a, an overview bird's eye kind of the flyby perspective, um, basically it's a block of wood with a hole chopped in it mm. and a wedge to secure the iron in it. There's a tote, you know, a handle that's attached but um, basically the plane is, you know, people have often said, I think most woodworkers have heard that a plane is essentially a jig to hold uh, a cutting iron at a specific angle and right. to a specific depth. I think that's a good description. That's all you're doing is you're, you're jigging the uh, iron to a fixed angle. And so um, you, it, I started by chopping the mortise. I started actually with a gouge. Um, to mm, be able, it's yeah, sort of right. like it has. It's like the cambered iron of a four yeah, plane. It's like what's the quickest way to remove this material? Exactly. Well, you use a gouge. Uh, so yeah, I used a gouge, um, and that is what um, uh, William Armour recommended, and it's so fast. So chop, chop, chop uh, with the uh, with the gouge, and then finish with a, a stout, straight chisel, a one inch chisel, to kind of clean up the rough mortise, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so you have this, I mean, this is after the layout, you, you chop down and you can reference um, off the layout lines, which are scribed on both sides of the plane body. So you can lay something flat on the bed and check on the side of the plane to see if it's right. projecting in a straight line. Um, and so rough chopping uh, the, the bed and the breast angles and then flipping it over to the sole, and you can see the mouth is laid out. And that is basically, you're just connecting it. You're connecting right. Connect the whole the lines. Through. Yep. So um, it really is helpful to start with um, a small drill bit and uh, bore a bunch of holes through the mouth into that angle, um, and then clean it out with chisels. And so at that point, you have a through hole. It's all the way through. All the um, way through your firewood. All the way through your firewood. Yeah. Um, and so you're just working within your layout lines. So once you get the lines, there really aren't any more questions to ask. Right. You because just stay you just, within them. You just get to the lines and no further. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so so once you get to that point, um, then you have the, the cheeks 
of the um on the other side either side of the mortise you have these cheeks the material that's left to this uh, body and so the you have to have the wedge has to seat into that material so you kind of you'd have to see it if you look this up if you look up wooden hand plane abutment a b u t m e n t if you if you don't know what i'm talking about just look it up and you go right. oh yeah okay yeah those things yeah. i see so the wedge has to sit under something it has to be wedging against something and so you relieve you widen the bed to give um, a little bit of space a little shelf into each side cheek so that the wedge can sit underneath it and so um using <laughs> how many of you have one um a, a compass saw or like a mm. Keyhole saw, yeah. right? Those little saws you see all over the place. Yeah, they must have been. I think it's a carpentry thing. They were just yeah, key, uh, compass saws all over the place. How often do you use your compass saw? I like never, ever, yeah. ever use my compass saw. Sometimes for cutting sheetrock. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Um, and so this is actually a, a great use for a, a finely toothed and set. Um, compass saw so what you want is you want a backless small saw Mm. to be able to saw the abutments Uh, again you're sawing the little relief that the wedge is going to wedge against so getting the saw blade i poke the um the toe of the saw out the mouth and i'm sawing into the cheek um down in the side trying to uh, saw some relief away so, I mean, so once you're cutting that, then you can chisel it and um, and pare it down so that you're relieving that. So now you've opened up the area. The bed is now wider than that rough opening you chopped. And there's some space that the wedge can fit in as well to, to push up against to pin that iron. Right. And uh, real quick, I do want to mention that, because um, you mentioned the compass saw, uh, there are specialty plane making tools out there, specifically floats, that people have often think, oh, I need all those specialty tools to make yeah. wooden body planes. And your your goal with this was to make this using no specialty tools. Yeah, yeah. a float, for those of you who don't know what a float is, um, it's, it's sort of like a combination between a saw and a rasp, if you think of it that way, or like, like a, a really file. wide saw. It's more like a, a um, yeah. yeah, like a saw and a file, rather, would be the way to describe it. Um, and... So it's like, yeah, if you think of a picture, a saw plate, right? And then make the plate either an eight, an eighth of an inch thick mm-hmm. or like an inch thick. Right. Does, yeah. Does that make sense? Super so wide. it's like you have yeah. these wide, long teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what a float is. Now it's not as tall as a saw plate, of course. Right. Um, so that's why it's kind of like a file with really wide horizontal teeth all the way across the face yeah Yeah. so it's kind of like a um a rasp um but uh so this is a specialty tool and they're quite effective and i got mine from lee nielsen um and they're they're great you can make them yourself too because it's in a lot of plane makers make their own floats all the time um they're really probably one of the easiest tools to make because you can just get tool steel and file some teeth yeah that's it. Um, but what I wanted to do is say, yeah, what if someone just wants to dip their toes into plane making? Right. I think each of those floats, I have tools. like three, three floats and each, they were like, I don't know, 
I don't know, 50 bucks or right, 70 yeah. or I don't know what yeah. they were. I mean, that's kind of steep to just try something. Right. So I thought, okay, I'm going to make this plane without using any of those things. So uh, files, rasps, and chisels will get the job done. Mm. Um, and I, there were a few spots um, that I felt like, yeah, I, I, I kind of wish I could use my float at this moment. But for the sake mm-hmm. of this project i'm gonna not um and but for the most part 99 percent of the operations you don't need floats you can get by just fine with anything else um so yeah i wanted to show that yeah you don't need specialty tools for this really at all if you have cabinet makers tools furniture makers tools you're ready to go yeah so from that point you're just cleaning up the mortise Yep. Basically, you're you're using you're doing some careful pairing and adjusting, fine tuning, and a lot of it is um, it's with with the iron as a reference, right? Exactly. So once you get it chopped out, the iron is the guide, right? And I think a lot of people they want to go. Well, I can find some old iron, but it's not really dead flat, so mm-hmm. that's going to be a nightmare to fit. Right. No, it actually has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so you um, you use you everything is referenced off what the iron is. Mm. Uh, if it's destroyed and twisted, well, that's it's messed up. Yeah, you probably shouldn't use it. But no pre-industrial iron is dead flat. Mm-hmm. So what you actually do, um, and I, I reference uh, Andre Rubeau, and um, and I've seen this n- numerous examples, but people think about trying to fit to match the fit of the um, the bed to the iron perfectly so that along the whole surface, the iron right. is evenly touching all the way down. Right. That's not the way you do it. Yeah. That's not correct. I mean, you go for it if you yeah. want, but that's totally- Certainly not necessary. Totally unnecessary. And Rubeau talks about, you actually want to hollow it in the middle so that it's touching firmly down at the mouth. So what I mean is the wedge pinning the iron to the bed. You want that to be pinned firmly down at the mouth mm-hmm. and up at the very top. And right. the middle of the bed, you actually kind of put it very gentle, not extreme, but just a gentle little hollow so that the iron is not touching in the middle of the bed. Mm. When you do that, think about how that simplifies right. all of the um, the fitting of the iron. So what I was doing is you, you can use, um, I used a marker, but you can use a marker or... Um, a candle soot is the a traditional thing on the back of the iron, and you set um, you set it on the bed. And you, once you make your wedge, uh, a wedge is basically just the process is quite simple, but uh, detail that you slide the wedge in, and so it's pinning the iron in the place it's going to be with all the soot or marker on the underside, so it's touching the bed, and then you you tap the iron forward. So what you've done is you've transferred the marks to the bed. So you have soot or marker now on the high spots of the bed. So if you have a high spot right in the middle of your bed, you can say, whoa, that's a problem. Yeah, (laughs) I got to get rid of that. that." And so you just check back and forth and you keep uh, paring the bed down. You can even use like a rasp. I mean, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a pretty looking bed. It's just get the the material out of the way. and I've seen rasp marks on beds. Right. These are not like, yeah. you don't eat off them. This right. It's not like it's show not a, surfaces. Not a tabletop. So what you want is you want the the markings, the soot or the, the marker 
to be marking uh, across the iron down at the mouth and at the top as well. And once you have that and it's not touching in the middle, you're done. Your iron is fit. Right. Um, huh. So it's a relatively quick process um, if you make sure to eliminate what's not relevant. Right. So then uh, from that point, you get into making the wedge and the fit of the wedge is a similar kind of thing, right? Yeah. And basically, um, you know, a, a wedge is just a, a tapered uh, piece of wood in any context, but this has to fit in a certain way. Um, and what you want to be watching for, there are several different things, but you have these two prongs or ears or fingers, people call them sometimes, um, the two pieces that stick out, they, they stick down. And that's what um, is underneath the abutments, what what is pinning the iron down by the mouth, down by the cutting edge, um, and all the way up. And so again, some people really get worried about the whole length of the abutment that the wedge perfectly fits all the way. Right. So they use feeler gauges and check down the whole length. Um, and that's just not necessary. Mm -hmm. um, you want it to be holding most firmly, Rubo tells us, down at the mouth. Right. Because if you if you if you just picture this, if you were to have the iron in a plane and it's pinned really firmly up at the top, mm -hmm. at the top of the bed, and down at the mouth, it's kind of loose. Yeah. Just guess what's gonna happen. Yeah. Just picture it. It's gonna flap around, chatter, it's gonna make chatter, it's gonna board. be a mess. If you reverse that, if you have it most firmly pinned at the mouth, and maybe it's just a slight bit loose in the middle or at the back, mm -hmm. that's not going to cause chatter right it might be annoying but right so i'm not arguing for having a loose fitting iron i'm just saying what's most important is that the 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 crucial aspect of the wedge fitting and the iron being pinned is right at the mouth yeah and we've talked about how the the krenov plane design proves that right because yeah. people who say you should really fuss over the fit of the wedge and everything I mean, Krenov planes just have a single pin across that the yep. wedge bears against. They have against. one point of contact. Yeah. So, and that does the job. Yep. Um, so the the idea is the same for these, uh, like the Yankee style four plane, yep. where um, the way the wedge interacts, it only has to be tight in specific places. Yep. So, so yeah, I mean, and once you have the the wedge and the iron there, I mean, the rest of it is sort of just prettying it up. You make mm, a tote, you yeah. make a handle. Um, I mortised the, the handle in. I put a little um, a, a button in the front so that I can, you know, as I'm loosening my iron, I'm not uh, smashing up the, right. the front of my plane um, as much. <laughs> um, and then it's, you know, putting on some nice chamfers and that kind of stuff. Um, but that's that really is just at the very end, putting a handle on it and prettying it up. Mm -hmm. uh, all the work of plane making is that hole, that yeah. stinking hole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with all these little angles and stuff. And so I wanted to just say, well, here's how you would do it if you didn't, you know, have some um, engineer measurement tools. Um, here's how. Here's sort of a straightforward, no nonsense way to approach it. Um, and the, so the point of the article is not anything you'll ever want to know about plane making. Right. Of course. The point is to um, to give you an introduction to plane making. That's why in this article, I'm I'm walking you through making a single iron plane. So there's no cap iron in this plane. Um, just because it adds one more thing to think about and sourcing an iron, 
you can buy new irons today. That's the other thing people ask, where do I get these irons? You can get them on eBay, Mm -hmm. especially, don't tell anybody, but uh, the eBay UK website, you can get- uh, Quite a few more tools over Plain irons, yeah. Yeah. But um, so uh, you can get old irons, um, but there are, and so you can get the cap irons there. And I, I really, I really like double irons, but in terms of getting new double irons mm-hmm. to make planes, yeah. they don't exist. Right. You can't get a new, you know, double iron for plane making. Um, however, there are people who are making the single irons, the, the tapered single irons. Right. Um, Dan Schwank at Red Rose makes them. Um, that's what you use. For and this that's what I night. use for this yep. article. Um, I Lee Valley has some. I was going to order some, but they weren't in stock, uh, and so I haven't. I don't have, don't have experience. But these tapered plane lengths, um, that's what you're looking for. So with that, you can actually get those. Those are around. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can do that, whether it's an old one or a new one, then you can try your hand at plane making. And then you might go, oh, so how does this apply to? a smoothing plane or a right. trying plane or a double iron plane or, you know, then you, it unlocks the, the molding plane world. Um, and so, yeah, the approach was basically saying, Hey, uh, here's the deep end. Mm-hmm. Jump in. Why don't you take a dive Yeah, and then doggy paddle to the edge yeah. and go, Whoa, yeah. that was crazy. That's kind of fun. And so your very first plane might not be an outstanding success, mm-hmm. but that's not the point. The point is to get you addicted so that you make a second one and you go, oh, wow. And also that it totally unlocks uh, right. a, a whole nother angle on woodworking and woodcraft that you're able to uh, under, understand and appreciate in a much better way because you've gone through it. Yeah, I mean, just like anything, the the best way to understand or learn something is just to do it and and to have mistakes and have failures. Because when you have that finished plane or, you know, you have that finished timber frame or that finished table that you've built, you can now look at all other tables in light of the things you've mm-hmm. just learned. Yeah. You can you can pick up any antique plane, look it over and say, huh, oh, I see they did that a little bit different. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll try that. Yep. And that that's how you can learn and grow rather than just reading about it, yep. you know? There are no shortcuts yeah, to knowledge. You just, gotta, you just have to do it. Yeah. there. I mean, <laughs> it's a funny example, but I maybe I've said this before in the podcast, but I've talked about it before. I used to be a really good parent before I had kids. <laughs> yeah. 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 And all the best advice comes from such people too. <laughs> Uh, but then when I had one, I was like, yeah. oh, this is, this is like a lot of work. And yeah. all the parents said, I know. Yeah, that's, that's what we've what been we telling you. you. I said, oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. But it's this process of seeing, mm-hmm. seeing more. Um, so that's what all of life is like. And so for plane making and woodworking, if if you're just reading articles about woodworking or imagining what it would be like to make a wooden plane, that's like the guy saying, oh, yeah, I know what it's like. I, I can imagine what it's like to raise kids. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, not really. I, I have a cat. <laughs> no so offense, it's pretty but... <laughs> much the same thing, you know. Basically, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, this article is an invitation to dive into the deep end so that you can know, so that you can experience it. And go, wow! And even if you never make another one, and the one you do make 
it doesn't work out perfectly. What it does do at the bare minimum is you have so much deeper appreciation for those who do make wooden planes. You're like, wow, that is so great. And when you see Steve Void at some, you know, woodworking event, you could say, so how do you do this? Because when I tried this, I was, you know, it's just yeah. your whole appreciation for the craft just goes to the roof when you try your hand at it. So yeah. And you've opened the trade, the, the door of the trade, and you've put your foot in. Yep. You're, you're in there now. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's an awesome place to be. Even if you're a beginner, you're in there and uh, you have room to grow and, and a path to move forward in that. Uh, so yeah. It's awesome. It's a great article. Uh, I might say the most exhaustive take, even though you're saying it's not take, It's not intended to be exhaustive, but you can open this article and make a plane and understand what's going on. So uh, that's an issue 12. Come into your door if you're a subscriber. Hmm. Uh, if you're not, you can go over and uh, check it out on our website and order a copy. Yep. Uh, but that's heading out as we speak. So... Uh, good stuff, and uh, I think there's going to be a lot of conversation around this. So, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, that's the goal. Well, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and as always, uh, any questions or comments or anything, you can leave them on our blog below or send us an email. And we'd be happy to get back to you. So uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, we'll catch you next time.